want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have your copy of God's Word, it will be in Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, I'll make a couple comments, uh, read the text, and then pray and ask for God's help. Uh, but it is a joy to be here. Uh, it, it, again, it is a bit intimidating for two reasons, to, to have this session and the topic after uh, Josh does a sermon on how Jesus preached, and then you get to go up and preach as the only Aiken in the room who doesn't have doctor before his name. So, uh, But uh, I've learned a lot from John in this area, learned a lot obviously from my dad when it comes to preaching, uh, excited to uh, open the word with you. There, there will be um, some overlap with what John talked about in his sermon. So I've tried to make some cuts. I'll probably try to make some other cuts along the way, uh, but hopefully uh, those alterations will still be helpful and edifying. Again, what we're trying to do with this is we've talked about preaching Christ in these different wisdom genres, uh, books, and then uh, now we're going to show a sermon uh, and preach through it. I have preached this text before, but because of learning more about how to preach Christ in Proverbs, it's, it's, it's taking on quite a different, um, different form. But again, I'm praying that it'll be edifying uh, and helpful as we kind of think through finally, how do we actually do this and, and showing an example of that. Also, just practically looking at Proverbs 9, uh, my brother has talked about already how this is sort of a, a training manual for kings. And the point is, if it's a training manual for kings, it's also then is something that helpful for us commoners to know. And so even in particular for those of us in this room, almost all of us are leaders. And so uh, understanding Proverbs uh, rightly and understanding wisdom certainly should help us in, in the task that we have been given. Now, Here's the context of where we're at uh, when we get to Proverbs 9. Again, uh, some of this has been alluded to along the way, but this is the end of the prologue, so the first nine chapters. And Solomon here, in some ways, is summing up the prologue, uh, the previous chapters of Proverbs, and he's setting the stage for the rest of the book by encouraging his son, again, this person who's to be the ideal Israelite, to marry wisdom, to, to kind of be enthralled with wisdom, for verbally to make wisdom his queen so that he would rule faithfully. Now, part of the point then, again, is that if this sort of wisdom is good for the king, it's also good for us, for commoners as well. Uh, and certainly, again, for those of us who would be uh, pastors and leaders in the church. And here in Proverbs 9, Solomon comes to the climax of the prologue of, of the book, and he sets before his son a choice. He sets before his son two contrasting ways, and he asks his son to make a fundamental faith decision to be in relationship with Lady Wisdom as opposed to being in relationship with Lady Folly so that, again, he can move from being the naive young prince to being the wise, well-married king. So Solomon, as it were, sets before his son two women that are competing for the son's attention. They're competing for the son's affection. He will either choose Lady Wisdom, or as we've, we've heard, wisdom that comes from above, or he will choose Lady Folly. And that wisdom that James 3 tells us comes from below. And that same decision then, though, also is presented to all of us. As we come to the book of Proverbs, as we come to the Bible itself, uh, there is a decision that is put before all of mankind, and that decision will determine whether we will ultimately be wise or whether we will be fools, whether we will walk in the way of foolishness. So I'll read the text. I'm going to ask for God's help, and then we'll work our way through. And then 
Again, if questions arise, uh, maybe good for us to talk through some of the things uh, as we get to the panel. So, and I obviously agree with my dad uh, that Solomon writes this, and he writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She, also, she has sent out her young women to call from the high places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and your years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by or are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Father, indeed, as we now kind of wrap uh, wrap up this uh, day together, thinking on your word, Father, may we be wise men and women. (coughs) Father, would you help us now as we think on the text? Would you please sanctify us in the truth? Uh, Father, we know your word is truth. Be Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the question of who you will marry is a massive decision. And so uh, I am the oldest of the four Aiken uh, sons. And so uh, I was actually, though, the last one to get married. And, and so uh, because of that, I was always, I always had people trying to set me up. I had parents who des- desperately wanted me to get married and brothers who wanted me to get married. Uh, and because I got married later in life, people would often joke with me and say that I was afraid to walk down the aisle. Now, to be fair, the closest I had ever come to marriage before I actually got married was when I was four years old at my aunt and uncle's wedding. I was a ring bearer, and as the ceremony started, I chickened out while my twin brother went down, stood in the place he was supposed to be, and I stayed at the back afraid. To this day, my aunt and uncle still prefer my twin brother over me. They hold it over my head. They'll say things like, think it's cute. They'll say things like, John delivered while Nate quivered. Real Barnabas is in my life. <laughs> Eventually, I did make my way down the aisle. I married a lady named Kelsey, and it's been wonderful. And we had a wonderful time of friends and family gathered. We even had a fountain of queso to celebrate the occasion. But we all know certainly that who we marry is a massive decision. And that is essentially what is going on in Proverbs 9. Solomon, like my parents, is trying to set his son up with a wife. He presents before his son the question, who will you marry or whose wedding feast will you attend? And that question again is posed to all of mankind as well. Who will we choose? 
The point that Solomon is trying to drive home to his son, and again, by extension, us, the, the, these scriptures have been written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come, is that the only way that his son, and again, by extension, us, will be able to live out the practical wisdom, the everyday wisdom that will follow in Proverbs 10 through 30, is by first making a fundamental faith decision to be drawn to wisdom. So my main idea then is this. Those who are in a relationship with wisdom will be wise, thus having a better life and a longer life. Those who are in relationship with wisdom will be wise, thus having a better and longer life. Solomon here is a wise and savvy teacher. He's using personification to, to teach his son, to appeal to his son about wisdom. And, and we're familiar with this, right? You know, advertisers use things like gecko to, you know, to sell car insurance. Growing up, there were things like Jolly Green Giants that were trying to teach us that vegetables were appealing. Didn't quite work for me. As Ron Swanson says, I simply view vegetables as the food that my food eats. I was actually in, this is interesting, listening to Juan talk about all the meat there in Leviticus because I was with Juan in Cuba uh, a few months ago, and he leaned over to me at dinner. Just remember, the guy talked about five different kinds of meats in his Leviticus talk a minute ago. He leaned over to me at dinner and goes, you know, Austin has a lot of good vegan restaurants. <laughs> it was all the proof I needed that the Gospel Coalition was indeed going woke. <laughs> But here, Solomon is personifying wisdom as a woman. He partially does this because we know the Hebrew word for wisdom, hokamah, is a feminine word, but there's more going on here in the text. Solomon is teaching his son, he's teaching his sons, plural, the youth of the nation, and he wants them to choose wisdom, and so he is a wise teacher because he portrays wisdom as a beautiful woman. But not just any beautiful woman, as we'll see in the text, a beautiful woman who can cook. Because what are young men drawn to? Young men are drawn to women and food, to Kelsey and Queso. And if a jolly green giant can make vegetables appealing, an appeal, a pretty woman who knows her way around the kitchen can certainly make wisdom appealing to Solomon's sons. So let's look at these two women. What we'll do is we'll look at verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18 together as we think about this question, who will we choose? Because ultimately there are only two options. There is no third way here. And as we work our way through, notice the similarities, but also the striking differences between these two women, two women who both will invite the simple to come to their wedding banquet. Look at verse 1. It says, wisdom has built her house and hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Let's notice the difference or the similarities between their preparations. Notice how active wisdom is. She builds, she carves out these seven pillars. Again, John mentioned this. Gives, this gives the picture that she has built a good house with a solid foundation, indeed a complete or a perfect foundation. The implication is that building your life on wisdom is building your life on something steady. But Lady Wisdom also not only builds, she prepares the meal. She sets the table. Interestingly, she prepares meat. She prepares mixed wine. This indicates that this is a feast. This is a banquet. This is a celebratory affair. And then she sends out messengers into the town to call people to this banquet. These messengers, again, act as ambassadors. They speak on behalf of the person who has sent them out, inviting people to the feast, specifically here, inviting Solomon's son. 
But let's see, folly as opposed to wisdom is lazy. Look at verse 13. Woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. Here we see she's not a builder. She doesn't even kill the meat. Instead, she sits and is loud. She knows nothing, which is probably why she can't build anything, which is why she is not active. She doesn't send servants out into the streets to invite people in. Instead, she sits in her chair and she just yells at people. She shouts at those walking by. And it seems, as we'll see in just a minute, her only tool of appeal is actually the tool of seduction. And so Solomon hopes we will see the difference in the activity of these two women and be attracted to wisdom. And even practically thinking for our purposes this morning, he is hoping that his son will be drawn to productivity rather than to laziness. But not only let's look at uh, their preparation, let's look at their audiences. Look at verse 4. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here to him who lacks sense. She says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. And then look at verse 15. Woman, folly calls to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Both invite the simple to their meals. Now, the simple are simply those who have not yet made a decision between uh, wisdom and folly. You might call them the swing boaters. They are neither mockers nor are they wise. Uh, and they make, both of them make appeals from the highest places in the city. You see that in verse 3 and in verse 14. They, in some ways, set up shop right next to each other on this, this top of the hill. And they are, they are competing for the same kind of clientele. Where I live in Wake Forest, uh, you have this sort of going on between restaurants. We have on one corner on a high place, you have Chick-fil-A, and right across the street, right across the other corner, you have Zaxby's. You have this picture of what's happening here. You have on one corner, Wisdom, Chick-fil-A, and on the other corner, Folly, that's Zaxby's. And they are calling out, they're trying to appeal to people to come in. The two women both call, you can see in the text, they call to those who lack sense which can literally be translated, they call to those who lack a heart. Scriptures are making a point here. They're telling us in order to be wise, we actually will need a new heart. The idea that we know as theologians, the idea of regeneration, just to make it very practical this afternoon, we need to understand both for our friends and our family and people that might come visit our churches, if they will never become believers, they never will be ultimately wise. It is theologically interesting, though, and this has been brought up already today as well, where they are building their houses. Because where they build their houses at the highest points of the city are places only reserved for temples. And so before the sun is not just an invitation from two different women, it's an invitation from two different temples. One is the temple of God that would have housed Yahweh, the, the people of God, uh, the, the one who had called Israel as his people. And the other temple would be a temple of idols, a temple of false gods that seeks to draw away Israel and to draw away Solomon's sons. And certainly those of us who follow in the footsteps of, of, of the church should be those who are on guard as well to be drawn away by false gods and by idols. But let's also look at their invitations. Look again at verse 4. It says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. And then look at verse 16. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. 
Their invitations at first glance seem the same. They're both saying, let the simple turn in here. And what we see in a way is that folly mimics wisdom. It invites from the same place. It has a same appeal. That's because folly wants to mask itself. Folly doesn't just come out and say, look, I am foolishness. No, instead, it masquerades as wisdom. This is why foolishness, folly, oftentimes starts in what seems to be harmless ways. This is why when it comes to things like affairs, it doesn't just happen overnight. It is slow. It is building. It masquerades itself as something good and slowly builds us up for something that would destroy us. However, if you read the text closely, you will see that their appeals are actually quite different. In fact, wisdom calls us to repentance. Wisdom says, leave your simple ways. Wisdom says, change your direction for my party. Folly, on the other hand, says, come in here and stay in your foolish ways. Again, remember, one of the reasons for why it is foolish to choose Folly's party is because Folly knows nothing. She doesn't even know more than those she's inviting into the party. In some sense, her basic invitation is simply this, let's all come in here and be morons together. Let's all come in here and be foolish together and stay in our foolishness. But not only are their invitations different, so are their meals. Look again, verse 2. Uh, She has slaughtered her beast, and then look down again at verse 5. Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. And then verse 17, this is Folly's meal. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. (coughs) The meals are not really all that comparable. Wisdom has meat, the most important part of a meal we know. Also has bread and has mixed wine. That should sound familiar to us. While folly simply has bread and water, one has steak, you might say, the other has a biscuit. Most scholars believe that this stolen water is connected to sexual immorality, the sexual immorality mentioned in Proverbs 5 of a man taking something that is not his, drinking from a cistern that is not his own, that does not belong to him. And so we again see her only appeal is an illicit appeal. It's an appeal to the forbidden. Indeed, it has been like this from the beginning. Satan's appeal to our parents in the garden is this. What you really need from God, what you really need in your life is the very thing that God has asked you not to do. It's the very thing that God has forbidden you to do. And that is a good picture of sin. That is a good picture of foolishness. And now we see the outcomes or the conclusions of where their parties lead. Look at verse 6. Leave your simple ways and live. And walk in the way of insight. And then verse 18, a sad verse. He does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the very depths of Sheol. The difference between marrying one or the other, going to one's feast over the other, you might say the differences are grave. One is a house of life, the other is a house of of death. Those who refuse wisdom's meal and invitation, they get death. To accept her invitation, though, to accept wisdom's invitation means you have to change your ways. Again, it means you have to repent. You have to joyfully receive the invitation to dine with wisdom. Brothers and sisters, we must see that foolishness, okay, things like pride and, and laziness and a loose tongue and lust... Foolishness and sin, they seduce with half-truth. She's not telling you the whole story. 
Sin does bring, bring pleasure for a time. Sin may feel good for a time, but we do not understand while it may be pleasant for a season, it will end up being devastating. The epitome of foolishness, you might say, is not connecting actions to consequences. Sadly, we do not see that taking follies invite, in doing so, we have accepted an invitation to our own funeral. Now, a word on the Proverbs. We haven't said much about this today, said a little bit, but the Proverbs are sayings that are generally true now, right? So if you're wise with your time, uh, you, you, you know, if you, are, you work hard, you're, you're likely going to get a promotion. You're likely going to be able to feed your family if you're faithful to your spouse. Things are generally going to go well for you in your marriage because the, the, the Lord of the universe has ordered the world in that way, that if you live in a wise way, the sayings in Proverbs will be generally true now. On the other hand, if you're foolish, again, if you're lazy, you will do poor in school or you may, get, uh, you may lose a job. If you cheat on your spouse, you will lose your family. If you get angry, you may go to jail. That is generally generally true now. But the Proverbs are ultimately and eternally true. Those who are in relationship to wisdom, those who orient their life toward wisdom, get life. And those who orient their life or are in relationship with folly, it says here in the text very clearly, they receive death. I think it's an important question to ask. Do we really discern that the difference between living a wise life and a foolish life is actually a difference between life and death. One commentator sadly says, speaking of these verses, many eat on earth what they will digest in hell. And we know that because the Proverbs are clear that there is a way that seems right to a man that simply leads to destruction. Now it's interesting, there seems to be a shift in the text. As you get to verse 7, because verse 7 and 12 at least on initial glance, doesn't seem to be connected to the two. Uh, it seems to be a little bit out of place, but let's look at verses 7 through 9 just quickly, and we'll work through 7 through 12. It says this, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wise. Or teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning." Again, this section at first glance, glance seems a little out of place, but what Solomon is doing is sandwiching these verses in the middle of the text is giving a picture of what these women will produce in those who are in relationship with her. Okay? These verses act as sort of a test to tell which path you are on, how you can know if you're on the path of wisdom or if you're on the path of folly. Lady Wisdom advises, if you correct a scoffer, a fool, or a wicked man, you will get abuse, you will get shame, you will get dishonor, you'll get injury, you'll get hate. So what is a scoffer? I mean, we, we know scoffers. We may be scoffers ourselves or have been delivered from that, but it's, it's, the, you know, it's the, the person who's obnoxious, who's arrogant, who's obstinate. It's those who are not willing to change. They, they treat those that would correct them with ridicule, with contempt. They're not open to correction of any kind. On the other hand, the text is saying, correct or reprove a wise man, a righteous man. He will love you. He will grow wiser. He will increase in his learning. The wise love correction. They, they welcome reproof because they do not think they yet arrive to the point where they cannot learn. He talks about this just one chapter over. Look at 10 verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. 
Wisdom is appealing to us not to become hostile to correction and to love both the instructor and the instruction. Instructors and instructions come in all kinds of forms, in all kinds of ways. It comes in forms of parents. Like as somebody who has a three-year-old, right, or coming up on being a three-year-old, I want to say amen to that. Instruction comes in the form of pastors. Elders should say amen to that. Teachers, bosses, police, friends, family, people we know. The bottom line is we are not perfect and we are not God, so we still need correction. And yet we know this all too well. When corrected, our pride so often bubbles up in response. Wisdom is saying how you respond to correction reveals which path you are on. Some questions maybe then to consider just practically for your own life. Take stock and evaluation of your own life. How do you respond to correction and confrontation? Is it love? Is it anger? What goes on in your heart when this happens? Do you actually listen to correction or do you immediately have a comeback or a way to justify your behavior? This is one that hits home for me. When somebody corrects you, do you immediately have a list of things about them that are wrong that you can point out? Maybe more practically, is there anything in your life that is off off limits when it comes to correction? Parenting, how you spend your time, how you spend your money. Do you have a relationship with anyone that has the freedom to say tough things to you? And I would say, particularly for those of us that are pastors, leaders, I think this is especially important for us. You know, not really planning to say this, but it seems that most of the examples that I know of of people who have fallen, there's all kinds of reasons why they have but it can almost always be traced back to the point that they had nobody in their life that they were willing to listen to who might correct them. They either got so big that they were above and beyond correction. The truth is, humbly and gently, both giving and receiving correction will make us wise and it will make us godly. And I think we need that more than ever. You know, honestly, the first time I worked through this text was years ago, and I remember when I worked through it, it was one of those times where like, you were really convicted by your own study. Because at the time, I had a, just this pain in my big toe, and I, you know, my mom kept saying, you need to go to the doctor. What you, like, why are you not going to the doctor? I had uh, uh, one of the wives of our elders kept saying, why, why are you not going to the doctor? And I was just like, but, because I'm a grown man and it's a toe. Like, why would I go to the doctor? Like, I, I made, basically made fun of them. And as I reflected on these verses, I recognized just how wicked my heart was. Like, they love me. And I'm being defensive. I'm I'm basically chiding them for trying to tell me to do something that might be helpful to me. And it ended up being gout. And because I didn't get it treated, it ended up getting so bad at one point that I had gout in my knee and I couldn't walk. I just want to say, brothers, the way we respond to correction is not a personality type. In fact, it reveals which path we're on, whether we're on the path of wisdom or whether we are on the path of folly, whether we are self-worshippers who think, how dare you talk to me about that? I think that's why these final verses are crucial. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. We need to fear the Lord, and we need to know God. The sage traces back to the beginning of the book, the beginning of wisdom, the main the, the main way his son will rule the kingdom well is that that son will fear the Lord. This, this idea of proper, loving reverence of him, it, it would have a posture of responding to that reverence, of, of absolute trust, following him, submitting to him. The wise acknowledge and fear God, whereas the fool, as Romans 1 tells us, suppress the truths about God and worship created things rather than creator God. In addition, Solomon shows us, and I, John made allusion to this a little bit as well, Solomon shows us knowing God is wisdom. Now, what is striking in the text is that to have knowledge equals knowing God. Every day, like earthly everyday wisdom has, you might say, heavenly origins. Do you want to be a wise man or woman? The way you're a wise man or woman is that you know God. Because ultimately, we know nothing if we do not know him. Scientists can know the depths of the black holes and yet not know the one who set the universe in motion. And ultimately, that means they know nothing. If we're going to understand creation, we're going to understand how it works, we must know the creator. Wisdom, then, is not knowing more facts. It's knowing how the world is designed and then being able to live according to that design. And you only fully know that from knowing the designer himself. And we do this by his word. Verse 11 tells us the outcome. If we are in relationship with wisdom, for it says, for by me you get life. Good life now, eternal life to come. Because it's interesting. Wisdom makes a promise here in verse 11 that only God can make. That only God can provide. The promise is this. If you're in relationship to him, there is better life now. Again, that's generally true. But if you're in relationship to him, there is eternal life to come. Better life now, longer life later. We're in Texas, so you might say it like this, your best life later. Finally, verse 12, there are individual eternal consequences for which woman we choose. Look again. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. In these verses, we probably have the strongest expression of individualism in the entire Bible. It's what Baptist theologians call soul competency, this idea that every single person will be individually responsible before God. We see here the eternal consequences of the choice of wisdom or folly will ultimately be carried by you and carried by you alone. This is not to say that others don't either benefit from or suffer from your choices, but upon death, whether you enter into eternal joy or into eternal suffering and eternal wrath, it is a decision that will be up to you and you alone. You will bear the consequences for your own behavior, and you will do so standing alone before God. So the question is, who will we choose? Who will the son here in Proverbs 9 choose? Again, John's hit on this some already, but we have good reason to believe, to, to quote the old priest in uh, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade, we have good reason to believe that the son chose poorly. We have textual warrant for that, right? Appears he walks past Lady Wisdom's door to, to Folly's. Folly gets the last word. Even just the first verse of chapter 10, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. And it's been pointed out, 
At the end of the book, the son is basically saying, I have not learned wisdom. I I do not have knowledge of the Holy One. Again, it's only mentioned here in Proverbs 9 and then again in Proverbs 30. And then he concludes, I am too stupid to be a man. If he's too stupid to be a man, he let alone, he cannot be king. And he laments that there is no one who can ascend to heaven and descend and come back down. There seems to be no hope. The son grieves unless one can do this, can go up and then come back down. But as John pointed out, the book does hold out hope of a prince son who will choose wisdom and who will rule God's people wisely and justly. And we're introduced to that king in chapter 31. Again, thinking about the fact that Psalm 2 and Proverbs 31 are the only places where we see the the term my son uh, used in the Old Testament in Aramaic. Where he says there in Psalm 2, you are my son and today I have begotten you. And this son does choose wisdom for his bride. He does choose the Proverbs 31 woman as his mate. Thus he becomes wise himself. He is well spoken of in the gate. And yet we know not only from Proverbs, but also from Israel's history and the rest of the scriptures that Solomon's sons will follow in his own footsteps. Indeed, they will bring shame to their mothers. They will bring heartache to the nation, almost always connected to the fact that they choose pagan women who worship false gods as their wives. They will sin, they will choose folly, they will fail, and they will all die. And the hope that there would be a son who indeed would rule the kingdom by wisdom will lie dead in Jerusalem tombs until we come to a town called Nazareth. Until we see another son of Solomon. Again, John made allusion to this It will be said of him even at a young age that he is choosing wisdom because he is growing in wisdom and favor and stature with both God and man. Even at 12 years old, he will wow the teachers in the temple with his wisdom. This one would speak in Proverbs. He would speak in parables. He would speak of two houses being built, one being built on a firm foundation, one being built on sand that will pass away. The one who in Luke 14 would compare his kingdom to a wedding feast, and then he would send out servants into the highways and byways, inviting all to come to this free feast. The one that we know from the New Testament would make better wine. And he holds out something to us greater than bread and wine itself. He holds out to us his body and his blood. He would be the one who would call from another high place. He would call from a hill. Paul will say of him in 1 Corinthians 1 that he has, because he has chosen wisdom, he has become the wisdom of God for us. Indeed, if we understand that knowledge of the Holy One is wisdom, if we are to be wise with the kind of wisdom that brings better life now and longer life to come, we must know him. Indeed, we must be in a fundamental faith relationship with him, to be enthralled with him. Because yes, brothers and sisters, wisdom is a path. Wisdom is a way of life. Wisdom is a way of knowledge and discernment, but ultimately we know from the New Testament that wisdom is a person that you can know and you can love, and by being in relationship with him, you can become wiser, and his name is Jesus from Nazareth. And what he does when he comes on the scene, initial act that we see is that he issues out an invitation to the simple, and he asks them to be in relationship with him. He says to them, would you leave your nets and follow me? And that same invitation hangs out there to sinners like us. If we will forsake folly, follow him, choose him, we will be welcomed into his banquet. 
me, brothers and sisters, but if there may happen to be someone who's made their way in this afternoon who's not a believer, the text is very clear that the penalty for the fool is Sheol. The penalty for the fool is the grave. And even worse than that, we should feel the weight of it. All of us have joined in Folly's party. All of us at times have walked in the way of the fool. All of us have been lazy or defensive or prideful or lustful or quick-tempered, quarrelsome. We've likely hated correction. We have not walked in the way of wisdom. And so all of us have the same fate. All of us have as our ultimate destination the grave, shale. But friends, we are... Surprised to know who's been there before us. For Christ has been there before us. He took the place of the fool at the cross. Though he had never sinned, he had never done anything foolish. Listen to this. He had never even spoken one idle word. And yet at the cross, at the high place, at Calvary's hill, he stood in the place of the fool. He took the place of sinners. He took the wrath of God and the judgment of God due our sin. He took it upon himself. He went into shale, taking the final penalty of that sin, the final penalty of folly under the weight of judgment. And yet how do we know who he is? He says who he is. How do we know he can do what he says he can do? Because he has gone through death. He has gone through shale. He has come out on the other side as the victorious and resurrected and long awaited for son of Solomon, the true king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, who establishes and rules an everlasting kingdom that will never be thwarted. And he does so by wisdom. And he issues out a call. Will you turn from your simple ways, cling to him and find life that is truly life? Indeed, as Josh said, wise men have been making their way to him from the beginning. And brothers and sisters, how will we know if we are in relationship with him that we are wise? Well, I think we see it here in the middle of the text. We must receive the, we must be those who can receive correction, meaning we must receive the correction of the cross. The cross has told it, already told us in the deep, deepest aspects of who we are, that we are wrong, that we are worse than we can even imagine. Indeed, the cross has told us that we are fools. And if we will agree with its assessment, we will find reproof and we will find instruction. At the cross, we are climactically told that we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. We cannot make ourselves right. We cannot do enough good things. And that is criticism. That is reproof. That is rebuke. It is the kind of rebuke we need. And yet it is so sweet because if we will agree with God's assessment, if we will repent of sin, if we will turn from our ways, if we will move from it towards wisdom, if we will fear him and follow him, there we can find wisdom. This is how we come to the cross, tasting the sweetness of correction and rebuke and yet we also taste the sweetness of forgiveness. And days will be added to you if you will repent of your sin and have relationship with wisdom. In fact, billions of days will be added to you. Eternal days will be added to your life. Meditate on that and it will help you be corrected. Because listen to this, correction is not devastating for the one who has already been corrected in the cross. Criticism is not devastating for those who have already been rightly criticized by the cross. So let the cross produce in you a teachable spirit because you understand, I am far worse than you even imagine, and that means that God's grace is far more great than you can even realize. And if we will, it will be a sweet reminder if we can think that we are living that sort of life, if we can understand what it means to be on the path of wisdom, it will be a sweet reminder of where we are headed 
It will be a reminder to us that we do know true wisdom, that we're in relationship with true wisdom. And it's so true that who you marry changes everything about who you are. I mean, it has so for me. But marriage in this life is simply a glimpse. It's simply a taste of the much greater wedding feast to come, of that day when the son of Solomon will sit at the head of the table where he will sit there with the bride that he has purchased with his own blood, who, because of his work on her behalf, has made her a Proverbs 31 woman. And on that day, he will feed us. He's going to feed us bread and wine. No more vegan sandwiches there. I'm holding out hope that there will be queso as well, because every good thing makes it into new creation. But brothers and sisters, until we see him face to face, may we follow him, be enthralled with him, learn about him, because indeed knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Father, we have thought a lot about the wisdom literature today, and Father, we are so thankful that indeed one greater than Solomon has come. Father, would you help us to be found in him so that we will be wise men and women wise fathers and mothers, wise sons and daughters. As has been alluded to, Father, may we be found faithful in our internship so that we're ready to reign with the Son. Father, we pray for the pastors in this room. I pray, Father, that they would be faithful shepherds. Paul tells Timothy that if we will put these things before the brothers, we will be a good servant. And so, Father, I pray for the pastors in this room that they will put Christ before their people and be a good servant to them. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus. May who we are and what we say and what we preach, Father, may it bring great glory to our King. Father, we need a measure of your supernatural kindness to be able to do any of these things. You, you have chosen to use jars of clay for your work in the world. Father, may we be uh, useful vessels. It would be useful to the master of the house. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.